You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. All the world, said J.M. Barry, the author of Peter Pan, is made of faith and trust and pixie dust. And in today's world, the concept of trust has been the foundation of a group of big companies which have swept all before them as they've come to dominate the world. For years, it seemed as though that small group of companies has had a liberal sprinkling of pixie dust as they've ridden a wave of confidence and positive mood to become some of the largest companies on earth. Lately, though, a series of headwinds seem to have blown away the pixie dust from one of that elite group, exposing a series of weaknesses which threatened to unravel years of extraordinary gains and, in the broader context, change the way the world looks at what's become known as big tech. This week, on Adventures in Finance, the failure of Facebook. Second of March 2018, and welcome everybody to episode 59 of Adventures in Finance. I am joining you from a very snowy Boston. Um, Alex, I presume you are joining us from a very snowy New York. Yes, I am. Excellent. And James, I presume you have seen zero snow down in the Cayman Islands. Well, it's a bit cloudy here. The wind wind is up a bit. Terrible, terrible. My heart bleeds for you. Well, um, big week this week. Uh, fascinating conversation to be had about Facebook. Now, this is um, something that is picking up speed uh, rapidly. And it's uh, been a long time in coming, but it seems to be that the turn that we've spoken about before on the podcast um, is upon us. And joining us this week, we have two familiar guests to regular listeners, both Jesse Felder of the Felder Report and Peter Atwater of Financial Insights, both of whom have weighed in on this before, um, and both of whom pay really, really close attention to the, the social media space. So I'm looking forward to talking to both of them in a little while. But before we get there, Alex, you and I need to uh, earn a small crust here and get into our long and short for the week. So as always, I'm going to be the quintessential English gentleman. I'm going to let you go first. So long or short, what have you got for us this week? I'm going to start with my short, uh, which is non-disclosure agreements. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, Are we allowed to talk about this? <laughs> I, I hope so. Um, so the the Trump White House has asked employees to sign NDAs or non-disclosure agreements. Uh, it's not something you always see. Actually, it, it's apparently never happened before in the White House. Not really a terribly important story, but I did enjoy the sentence from the New York Times article about it. The White House declined to provide a copy of the two to three page document, which was described by several current and former White House officials who signed it and insisted on anonymity to discuss it. <laughs> you know, I, well, look, a it doesn't seem to be working as planned, but I don't B, think so. uh, I, I'm I'm surprised that um, if you're a public servant working for the government, I'm surprised that quote unquote the Trump Organization can uh, can make you sign a non disclosure agreement. I, I would have I would have thought they would either be commonplace or unenforceable. I'd be very surprised if you could actually bring one in now, and it would it would carry any weight. Seems very strange to me. Yeah, apparently they're talking. Inter- uh, people who work at the White House are talking internally how about how it doesn't really carry much weight. Um, you know, they, they are kind of uh, going going about a freestyle uh, method of management at the White House. It, it seems. Um, yeah, it does make, seem that way. <laughs> makes sense. They wouldn't want want leaks, but uh, 
the idea that this story about an NDA leaked immediately uh, th- does not foretell. Well, you, I mean, look, I, I, I would. I, what they really need in the White House is a an NTA, a non-tweet agreement. That might actually <laughs> solve uh, an awful lot of problems. I doubt yeah, they'd get so. anybody to sign the damn thing. Sadly. Uh, well, you you started off with your short. I'm going to start with my long, uh, and. I almost feel like I should have a drum roll for this. I'm going to pause here and James can add a drum roll in in post. I've got a great drum roll for you. Okay, perfect. I am long, drum roll please, a central banker. Yes, I am long, a central banker. And the central banker in question is none other than Jerome J. Powell, the new chairman of the Fed. Wow. Um, Yeah, I know. I I never thought I'd say this out loud. certainly outside of a therapy session, but, uh, but here I am saying it out loud and into a microphone. And, you know, I, I put a presentation together recently called Snakes and Ladders, and in it um, I looked at Jay Powell and some of the, the minutes from the October 2012 Fed meeting, which was one of his first couple of meetings as a member of the FOMC, and what he was saying back then showed him to be a completely different animal to the last, certainly the last uh, three Fed chairs, um, and, and a sort of throwback to the Paul Volcker era. You know, he's, he's had a long career in investment banks, as a venture capitalist, as a private equity guy. So you kind of had this sense going in that he was a real-world guy. And just listening to him at the press conference this week, when he spoke in a language called English as opposed to central bank speak, you know, it was incredibly refreshing to hear a man talk um, in understandable language without deliberately trying to be obfuscatory. Now... There is a caveat to my long in J-PAL in that it remains to be seen whether all the great things he said about how well he understands the situation the Fed is in and, and the damage they've been doing with their policies over the last years, now that he's in the big chair and uh, there's going to be a point when push comes to shove and maybe he doesn't actually walk the walk as well as he's talked the talk. So I'm long with a caveat, but yes, for the first time in a long time, I am long a central banker. Alex, what do you make of that, my friend? Well, it is it is quite shocking. Um, I, I I see where you're coming from. Although, since since he maybe doesn't have as um, his principles and aren't as firmly honed as Bernanke, who did all that research uh, before he became chair of the Fed about what happened in Japan and, and what he would have done about it, uh, were he in the driver's seat. I, I wonder if if Powell will have the same fortitude to, for instance, if, if we do see. Even just a, a big equity drop, whether Powell had the fortitude to, to say that's all right. Well, you know, one of the points I was making when I gave this presentation was that um, we will finally know because when push comes to shove, we know that he understands this, uh, the real world aspects and the real world implications of it better than any of his predecessors, certainly his recent predecessors. So, what he does when the rubber meets the road, will tell us, will answer the question as to whether they've just been being disingenuous this entire time. Well, they really did believe that QE would work and that there was no problem and everything was contained and blah, 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 blah. Because he has said unequivocally that he understands that the Fed's blown a gigantic uh, duration bubble across the entire credit spectrum. He understands the way markets view QE. He understands that unwinding the balance sheet is going to be difficult. All this stuff he understands. So if he goes ahead at the first sign of trouble, slashes rates and embarks upon Mm -hmm. QE, then we know unequivocally, finally, that this whole thing is just an exercise in keeping everything together and it has nothing to do with um, the real world. So we'll see. Uh, I mean, no one listens to this, right? No one's actually heard me say that about the central bank, have they? Yeah, to to hear you laud the chair of the Fed, I, I wouldn't say it's a hell freezes over moment, but it's maybe it, it's it's getting a little chilly down there. Well, as I said, thank goodness nobody's out there listening to this because uh, I can always deny it. it's just you, me, and James. Um, okay, so that leaves uh, your long and my short. So, what's your long for the week? Yeah, so I am long Starbucks. Um, there is a, a story that that sounds kind of silly, uh, where Starbucks is offering a crystal crystal ball frappuccino where. The sprinkles they put on will tell your fortune. Uh, you can either get blue sprinkles for adventure, green sprinkles for luck, or purple for magic. You can't choose the sprinkles. Uh, it's chosen by some magical formula, as far as I can tell. Uh, I, I did want to uh, criticize this because you know, I'm, I'm a, I kind of enjoy my, my coffee, and, and this doesn't seem to be exactly in line with, with the way I like to drink coffee. But I actually think this is... Pretty brilliant. This and other projects that Starbucks is embarking on where they, they, they want to see people post their beverages on social media. It seems like a brilliant way to go about it. So I, I just have to 
put aside my cynicism and, and say uh, hooray Starbucks on this one. Well, allow me to pick up your cynicism, add it to mine, and say this sounds like the beginning of the end of civilization to me. I mean, what the hell? Seriously, is this, is this what we've become? Is this really what we've become, honestly? Yeah, I mean, you might do a Paris trade where you went long Starbucks and shorted you know, human intelligence, uh, but, but, but for Starbucks, I, I, think, uh, I, think, I think it's pretty wise. Uh, you know, if, well, if, if, well, do you know what will be interesting, I think, uh, given the subject at hand today uh, and what I suspect... Uh, Peter and Jesse are going to have to say when we talk to them shortly. It's going to be very interesting, actually. Things like this uh, initiative from Starbucks may well belong in an era that ended a week ago. Uh, mm. So this is actually going to be things. This is going to be very, very interesting things to follow in terms of whether attitudes, broad attitudes towards social media, have changed. And uh, I get a real sense that maybe they are going to change a lot faster than people think, but. I'm not the expert on that when we have two people who are. But before we get to them, uh, it's time for my uh, short. And I was doing some research this week for something I'm writing, and I came across um, a, a list of some of the more ridiculous scientific studies, scientific research studies from 2016. Now, oftentimes you, you read, you know, a scientific study has said that sleep is good for you, and you think, you know, do you really have to dig in and spend research dollars figuring this stuff out? Um but there was a list here of the top ten, uh, sorry, the top eight dumbest research studies of 2016, and so I just thought I'd, I'd share those with you in the context of my short of uh, scientific research studies. The first one um, was an extensive research done by Cambridge University in the UK, who uh, concluded that the larger a person is, the more adhesives he would need to stick to a wall. Uh, <laughs> now, call me old-fashioned. Um, but this was, I guess, to prove whether Spider-Man could exist. I don't know. But they spent real money uh, on concluding that, which uh, I found remarkable. There was another study from uh, a joint study. A team of psychologists from Plymouth University and Queensland University in Australia have determined uh, that um, after many hours of playing Tetris, the game can be addicting and distract users from doing other stuff. Now, again, I I'm not quite sure how they managed to finish the study, but uh, apparently, if you play Tetris, it might uh, cause you to forget to do other things. Uh, and the other one that really, uh, that really amazed me was um, a study of tens of thousands of Japanese men and women. And they concluded that a healthy diet will help you live longer. I mean, it's just remarkable. So uh, having read these and just sat here quietly shaking my head at each one of them, I felt that it was a good week to be short scientific research studies. So it sounds like these scientists are just trying to see what sticks. No, oh, dear God. <laughs> Sorry. Really? You know, I... I, I really? <laughs> you know, I am actually going to take the other side of this trade, Grant, if I may, because I one of actually my issues with, with scientific studies is that they always kind of prove the, the surprising. They, they prove that, you know, oh, three glasses of wine every day is, is, is healthy for you or, or uh, you know, sleeping in a bed is no better than, than sleeping on the ground. And there's, there's a kind of bias toward novelty. And so these studies that prove that actually eating a healthy diet is, is good for you is that when you play a lot of Tetris, you uh, begin to become a little addicted to it. Um, you know, it, it, maybe it's good to have these out there because then it, it doesn't open the door for people to, to get their own data and, and, and find something that actually just happened that one time, well, but look, it's the only time okay. we're going to publish it. I, I see why you're coming into it from, from that angle. But, but realistically, if a scientist didn't actually do a research study and said to you, you know, eating healthy helps you live longer, would you demand to see the results of the survey? Or would you think, you know, that makes sense. No, but, but at least I'd have some proof that when someone said, actually, uh, you know, e eating confectionaries all day is the key to a long life, I'd say, actually, there's another study. So I'd be able to, to, to weigh, to weigh my, put my hand well, on it. Listen, if anyone tries to sell you that particular little story, I don't think you need a scientific study. Plus, the whole red wine thing, I mean, honestly, in my lifetime, I swear to God, I reckon yeah. red wine has been good for you, bad for you, causes cancer, cures cancer, helps you sleep, stops you sleeping. Uh, I, I am amazed, actually, as to how many different studies into the consumption of red wine are done. But I guess perhaps, actually, if I think about it for two seconds, I shouldn't be. I think if you were a scientist and you could get paid to do studies into drinking red wine, I guess you'd want to do those all day long. Yeah, I, I will be impressed if they, the Starbucks crystal ball frappuccinos help you sleep better and live longer. 
<laughs> yes, I doubt that's going to happen. Anyway, enough of this. We need to get to the important topic at hand, which is Facebook. And uh, in the broader context, social media, I guess. But t- to help us decide where this conversation is going to go, we have two fantastic guests returning to Adventures in Finance. Um, and joining us first is uh, a good friend of mine, Jesse Felder, who writes The Felder Report. Uh, Jesse has been all over the social media space for a long, long time. Uh, and he's one of the people who I turn to when I'm looking to, to try and figure out what's happening. And so I'm absolutely delighted that he's joining us again this week. Thanks for having me, Grant. It's my pleasure. It's uh, you know you and I have got uh, have got plenty to talk about um, this week because the subject at hand is a subject that you and I have discussed in the past at length, and uh, you've done some phenomenal work on this, and, and that is of course Facebook. Um, now, the last time you and I actually met in person, we were sitting talking about this very thing uh, up in Oregon, and um, lo and behold, what you predicted was going to happen is is playing out. So, you know, as as we enter this this backlash era, um, why don't you just give people a, a recap on on your thinking around the broader picture, and then we can dig into Facebook. Sure, you know, I, I it wasn't so much a, a prediction as just paying attention to trends, um, and the trends, you know, that have been working against Facebook and big tech have been in place. You know, I've been I've been noticing them for I don't know since since that conference, just a little bit before it. Last summer really is when I started started noticing a change in tone towards towards a lot of these companies and and really towards uh, Facebook and and social media generally. I think you know the latest kind of furor that's come up uh, over the past weekend about the Cambridge Analytica revelations and things are surprising to some, but uh, really not surprising to people who've been paying attention to what's going on at these companies um you know uh, the the whistleblower at cambridge you know basically said we've been exploiting facebook to harvest millions of people's profiles and build models to exploit what we knew about them and target their inner demons that was the basis for the whole company uh that they built and you really don't know if it, is he talking about Cambridge? Is he talking about Facebook? <laughs> That's literally right, right. what Facebook was was designed to do. Let's harvest people's data, figure out how to use that to manipulate them, and, uh, and, and by using principles of psychology and all these things. And and so this is exactly what Facebook has been doing for a long for for a long time now. Well, you know, when we started talking about this, you and I, we were looking at some of the articles that are being written about. You know, really negative articles about what these uh, social media th- um, platforms are doing to particularly young people's brains. You and I both have uh, young kids who are, who are at the right age to be uh, manipulated along these lines. And and it was striking just how, how few and far between these articles were. Uh, I'm thinking of one particularly that you and I both came to independently in the Atlantic. Um, uh, hopefully we can put a link to this in the show notes uh, about, I think the title was Have Smartphones Ruined a Generation?, uh, right, but but as few and far between as they were, they were incredibly powerful pieces. If you sat and read them, and and intuitively they made sense. You know, I I I was on Facebook when my kids got on it just to check out what was going on and make sure everything was fine, and, and I ended up ditching it because I just got tired of it and and being served a lot of nonsense basically. But you could tell that that what those articles talked about in in terms of how they sucked up your time and made you more miserable. That's one kind of prong of this. But this Cambridge Analytica story has revealed the other side of it, which is obviously just how powerful and how important data is, and perhaps more importantly, the lengths people will go to to get hold of that data. Right. And, and you know, I think the, the biggest, um, you know, revelation from this weekend was when Facebook executives came out and tried to immediately do some damage control. They said, wait, wait, this wasn't a data breach. And you go, yeah, immediately, right. okay, well, that's that's worse than if it was a data breach, right? You know, they actually got the data without having to breach any of your platforms. And then, you know, what, uh, you know, if, uh, another ex Facebook insider, Sandy Paraculis, who was one of the guys trying to look at these um, uh, issues with with data uh, at Facebook uh, when he was there, and he, he quit a few years ago because he was frustrated with the company not doing enough. He came out and basically said this type of data harvesting outside of Facebook was routine. Um, you know, not just Cambridge Analytica, but everybody, anybody who created an app to be used on Facebook, people discovered years ago that the the value 
was in owning this data and then figuring out ways to manipulate it so that you could exploit people. And uh, so I, I think this is this is what's kind of uh, new news this weekend that's becoming more interesting is that this has been going on for a long time. Facebook has known about it, has actually encouraged it. Um, you know, there was a woman inside the Obama campaign who said that uh, Facebook discovered that they were harvesting data and then said, you know, just look the other way because they were um, supportive of it. So I, I think there's, a, you know, um, a lot, a lot of issues here uh, about the the not just the value of the data, but the dangers in it, you know, falling into the wrong hands and and people being manipulated. And this is the thing that's frustrating to me is people think, oh, I'm I'm not manipulatable, or you know, <laughs> it hasn't happened to me. But we all were human animals, and we all have these psychological. Uh, principles that affect all of us subconsciously. Um, there's a great book, I can't remember the, the title of it, but it's about the art of persuasion. Charlie Munger recommended it years ago. And <clears throat> advertisers and marketers have known these principles for a long time. And when you can profile somebody so extensively based on this, their online behaviors and all the data that's collected, you can manipulate people in ways that they have no no imagination at all about how it's happening, and it's it's extremely powerful and extremely dangerous. Well, and I think this is this is the big change because I think we all understand that advertising is manipulation. But when the advertising was basically the the advertising execs trying to figure out what would appeal to people and it either came through your TV or it came on the radio and they were always trying to figure out what people – and they might do studies or they might bring you know, focus groups and figure out what worked and what didn't. But now there's something sinister about the fact that, that they are able to target people so precisely um, and in the echo chamber that social media has become that – targeting just gets reinforced over and over and over again and it, and it it's it's as i said it's so precise that they can tweak it you know as if we're all kind of lab rats in in an experiment somewhere right yeah I and mean, they can tweak it you know if it's it's efficacy but they can also you know something that as you know print advertising and things haven't been able to really do in the past which is control your attention whenever they feel like it by sending a notification to your phone and so you know i mean if you picked up a magazine you, you could be swayed by print advertising you can put it down and you know you're you're not swayable at that point but when you have a smartphone on your person 24 hours a day and there's notifications pinging you about what's going on these companies decide when to ping you, what time of day, how to ping you to get you to do, to pay attention to what they want you to pay attention to and then act on on how how they want you to act. And so the technology altogether makes it so much more potent um, than it's ever been. But but, I mean, that is, we've we've all become rats in an experiment. I mean, it it is, it is remarkable to me. Now, now a few months ago, you interviewed Roger McNamee, um, the ex-Facebook exec. And I know your conversation with him was one that resonated with you. Talk a little bit about about what Roger had to say to you. Yeah, you know, there were two things when I was I, I was really worried about um, a systemic risk to Facebook's business model. You know, when I when I look at these things and you go, okay, well, Facebook is built on harvesting data and then uh, using it to manipulate people, selling that data to the highest bidder. Um, it, you know, and and. So in my conversation with Roger, that's what I was really trying to get to. And, and he was saying, you know, from an investor standpoint, there, there have been a f- there's a couple things that people should be worried about. One is either these companies are going to get m- much more highly regulated because they, they, the powers that they're auctioning are, are so great uh, that regulators are eventually going to step in. Um, but if regulators don't step in soon enough – then people are going to start to realize how they're being manipulated. They're going to be upset by it that, you know, this bargain that they've made with, you know, I get this free social media platform in exchange for, you know, uh, turning over all of my data to you um, is not one that they want to to make. Um, and so I, I think both of these things are actually playing out right now. Uh, it's not one or the other. You know, I, I was really, you know, when I was talking with Roger, we kind of thought it would be one or the other. And uh, right now, I think there's a few things that really should worry investors. One is that, uh, you know, when you look at leadership at companies and, and you look at good leadership, when there's a crisis, um, you know, good leaders come in and they over-apologize. They, they over-compensate um, uh, for, for what went wrong. And, um, you know, Scott Galloway, the NYU professor, 
you know, has talked about the, the Johnson & Johnson as the case study when the, you know, ty- poisoning in Tylenol, they didn't just take the couple, you know, a couple bottles off the shelf and say, oh, this was a, a mistake and it's an isolated incident. No, they took every bottle off all the shelves and um, refused to let there be any risk at all of further harm being done to their customers. And so people really trust and love Johnson & Johnson as a brand because they uh, have demonstrated that. You know, Facebook is doing the exact opposite thing. They are sticking their head in the sand. They're trying um, to spin these things as it's not a big deal. And, um, you know, one of the biggest things is when a, a, an executive has confidence, you know, in a company that's going through a crisis, um, you know, they, they somehow keep some skin in the game. Nassim Taleb has, has written about this. And there's no company over the last three months that's had more insider selling in the United States than Facebook. Executives are selling an unbelievable amount of stock right now, which when they're handling this crisis so poorly and then selling as much stock as they possibly can at the same time, it should be very, um, I guess, discouraging to investors. Um, you know, And then there's you know the increased regulatory issues uh, that are worrisome on top of the bad leadership. You know, the British uh, <clears throat> cabinet minister in charge of these issues came out and said the Wild West is over for tech companies. They're going to start to really increase regulation in Europe. And then Facebook's probably in trouble with the FTC over these data violations. Um, you know, uh, back in 2011, they settled with the F- FTC, you know, I think agreeing to fines up to, you know, I think $40,000 per violation of, uh, you know, in terms of allowing data to, to, to um, be taken off of their site. If, if it's true that 50 million users have had their data stolen by Cambridge Analytica, um, then, you know, that times $40,000 is, you know, gets in the trillions of dollars of potential fines yeah. for the FTC. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of potential problems right now for, for Facebook. And I do think, the regulatory issues now um, uh, represent a systemic I- uh, risk to to the business model. If their business model is built on collecting data and then selling that data, um, and and regulatory uh, re- regulatory agencies are going to look at, uh, you know, okay, how do we how do we uh, reform this? Probably data ownership is gonna is going to be at the centerpiece of regulatory reform, which is you know goes to the heart of the business model. Well, this is what I wanted to come on to next, this this, this sudden uh, interjection of the regulatory authorities. Because when you and I talked about this a few months ago, this was where we figured this was going to go. I think you and I were kind of looking at the DOJ for a, maybe a possible antitrust case, something along those lines as, as, as being where the rubber met the road. But here we are in, in the UK, as you pointed out, we've seen this, um, you, the, the, the regulators in the UK, certainly the, the government taking a very strong initial position in this. We've seen the FTC uh, today talking about uh, there being a probe of Facebook uh, for the for the Cambridge Analytica breach. Let's call it. Um, yeah, this to me is is more symbolic in that the age of tech being friendly seems to be over, and the age of tech being a possible threat is here. And you can you can feel it when you read the news. You can feel that the mood has very very uh, perceptibly changed towards these companies. So, so you know, if, if that is correct, and it certainly feels to me like it is, what does that mean for these things, uh, for, the, for these big tech companies? Because to, to me, it, it signifies huge problems around the corner. And with, with the valuations that these companies currently uh, command, uh, from an investing standpoint, that could be extremely tricky. Yeah, and I, I think the main thing when you think about okay what are what are the potential regulatory you know implications of this i keep coming back to one thing and i keep listening to all of these silicon valley insiders and they keep coming back to uh, facebook you know none of these companies can be trusted to safely manage this data um, they cannot be safely uh, or trusted to regulate themselves and um, you know, I'm not a, a bull on on Bitcoin, and I and I don't want to really open that Pandora's box. But I do think there's the, a, a, a very interesting application for distributed ledger protocols here when it comes to personal data. And I think that this is where regulatory reform is eventually going to go. Is that uh, you know, no, Facebook should not own your data. 
Amazon should not own your data. Um, you should own your data, and you should be allowed to rent it out to these companies in order for them to provide a service to you. And you could, this is like I said, this is one of the interesting applications of DLP is you could use a distributed ledger protocol so that your data is not stored on Facebook servers. Your, da- your, your data is not stored on anybody's servers. It's, just, it's stored in a distributed way. But you own it, and you have the ability to, to, to lend it to companies who you want to do, choose to do business with. And to me, that's you know, the most exciting application of, of a DLP. And it also seems like um, you know, when, I, when I hear from all these Silicon Valley insiders, that's, that's the, the solution that, they're all, that they would point to as, okay, how do we prevent these things from happening? Um, we, we need to have, uh, you know, uh, not, we need to not trust these companies to, to own our data in the first place and then uh, keep it safe from bad actors. But that, that's, I mean, there are those apps that are out there. I mean, there are plenty of apps that allow you to control your data and choose who gets to see it. Um, and so I think, you know, I think the marketplace is already offering a solution to that particular problem. I think for the for the big tech companies, particularly the, the, the data gathering ones that like we're talking about today, the problem comes with, with the, the public's mood. You know, it, it's amazing how quickly Facebook can become a villain, if you like. It, it's amazing how quickly public mood can be swayed against them. And, you know, I think this started back uh, after the election in 2016. Uh, all the stories we saw there about how Cambridge Analytica and the like had actually used Facebook to manipulate people, it felt to me like it started then. But I've been fascinated this last week, um, particularly reading the press in the UK, which seems to be a little bit ahead of the US on this, just how quickly the mood has changed. And I've seen uh, comments on Twitter. I've seen emails from friends of mine, uh, all of whom have said, you know, yeah, look, I gave up on Facebook a while ago. It got kind of nasty and I, and I didn't really like where it was going. And it, it really doesn't take much for just as, that, as Facebook rode that positive wave up to enormous growth very, very fast. Um, you've got two problems on the downside is one, your kids are kind of abandoning Facebook um, and two, if if the older demographic who seem to have kind of taken over as the main um, as the main focal point of that network suddenly start to decide, you know what, I don't like this anymore, the company has a real problem, right? Not just from the regulators, yeah. but from its business model. And for a company that gets ninety, what let's call it ninety five plus percent of its revenues from advertising, um, this is a huge wake up. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. And that, and that's the other side of it. That's the the other prong of the the two pronged risk. Um, but just a point about the data ownership. You know, you're right about owning um, your data. But I don't own my search history. Um, Google owns no. my search history. I, I don't own my like history, and I don't own my you know these types of things, which which are very valuable to me if I wanted to to use them in the future. So you know that was my point about data portability, and and if I wanted to go put to a new social media platform um, you know where I believe the values or you know whatnot I should be able to bring those that part of my data with me to right. to make that site more applicable to me but you're right in terms of people leaving the site Nielsen uh, came out with the most recent ratings and in December, uh, people were sp- spent 24% less time on Facebook, 9% less time on Instagram. And so this is December. This is even before you know these latest revelations over the last three months. People were already starting to abandon the site. And you know, Mark Zuckerberg came out in the first quarter conference call and said, "Yeah, we did this on purpose." And I just, I, you know, I don't know how many people yeah. remember <laughs> Pee Wee Herman, but you know, it reminded me of Pee Wee Herman when he falls off his bike and said, "I meant to do that." <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> no, it, it, why would you ever turn people away from your site down 24 percent um this is people abandoning the site even before these revelations have come out and so this is this is the other risk that roger was talking about is if you don't regulate this stuff and people do start to begin to understand how they're being manipulated that is a that is actually the bigger risk to facebook uh, than regulatory risk, um, you know. Roger told me he said people should hope that that these companies get regulated because then people will have more faith in them. 
Um, if they don't get regulated in time and people lose faith, that's when that's when the stuff can can really blow up. I, you know, another example of this was um, a photo sharing app in the last few weeks. Um, I think it was a couple of weeks ago I first saw it, this new photo sharing app called Vero was the number one uh, app in the app store. Uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, and 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 Instagram is you know such a, a valuable platform for Facebook too. That if people are are switching over to Vero uh, because it has no advertising, because it has no data collection, because it 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 actually assuages their concerns about privacy, um, that is a huge sign there too, and, and that people are really starting to pay attention to this stuff. So, so what do you see in the immediate future for for Facebook in particular, and perhaps the you know the Fang stocks in general? Because you, you've written some absolutely fantastic stuff on on this segment of the market. You know, there are very few people who've been out in front of this as well as you have, uh, and we'll give people a chance to find out where they can find out more about your writing because it, it, it is just superb. What do you when you look at the next sort of you know quarter? What do you see as being the main problems for, for Facebook in particular and, and the broader Fang universe in general? Well, I think these, these, this two-pronged risk is pointed directly at Facebook right now. The regulatory risk is getting at the heart of the business model. If, if um, data ownership becomes an issue among the regulators, then that's literally uh, could be a death knell for, for the company. But I, you know, I, I, I think you're right in, in being worried more about the, the user base. Um, people are really starting to um, think of the this company Facebook as uh, as as a as a bad actor itself, not just being used by bad actors to manipulate people. I mean, TechCrunch had a, an interesting article today where they said um, Facebook is a cancer, and when you start people start talking like this. Um, you know, they start feeling, you know, gross in using the product. That I mean, this stuff happens so much more quickly. For me, it seemed like, you know, it, you know, you and I were talking about it months ago, and it seemed to have happened in slow motion since then. But, but now it's starting to happen so much quicker, and these things change. People think this is a half a trillion dollar company. Um, it's not going anywhere. But if if you learn anything from the history of technology. Is that you know creative destruction is a real thing and it happens very quickly, and there are no real you know uh, especially in you know social media there's no history of uh, companies that have long tenured success uh, in this in this industry because social you know uh, trends are so fickle. So I, I I think this this could unravel a lot quicker than than um, analysts at least Wall Street analysts. I think there's 48 guys that cover the stock of 46 still have buy ratings on it today. Christ. So I think a lot of this stuff could unravel a lot quicker than than people think. Well it's 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 definitely a cautionary tale and certainly for me I I, I think uh, I, I think you can you can put a stake in the ground here and I think the decline of Facebook in particular probably began several months ago, but I think your point is right, that the speed with which it grew caught a lot of people by surprise. And I think the speed with which these things can fall for grace uh, from grace is going to surprise people even more. Um, Jesse, look, it's been fantastic having you on. Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, let everybody know uh, you're, you're, you've been on the podcast before, so people have had the chance, but, but please remind people because anyone out there that's enjoyed this conversation, you are absolutely one of the first names they should be following in this space because you're, you've been all over this for months. Yeah, you're too kind, Grant. Um, yeah, I, I, I try and um, just share a lot of the stuff that I, I I do a ton of reading every day. So I try and share a lot of that on Twitter. It's just at Jesse Felder is my Twitter handle. And then I I, um, I blog regularly at uh, thefelderreport.com. Try and put up you know, once a week a post there. Um, not all about tech, but kind of what I'm seeing in the markets and, and that sort of thing. So. Well, look, it's it's been uh, it's been as much fun as it always is when you and I get a chance to talk. Hopefully, the next time we can do it in person again. But uh, but for now, Jesse, thank you again so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Yeah, so th- that was really interesting, and and it was interesting to hear Jesse talk about the negative effect social media has uh, on kids, or at least according to some studies. Do do you do you buy that? Do you think that uh, social media will, will actually come to think, wow, that that's actually I, I can't believe we we used it's like painting with lead. I can't believe we used to let kids do that. Well, it's a fascinating conversation, and I think personally, I think we're at a place where social media will have to change. It's been it's been so kind of laissez faire so far, but and it really it's only now that it's been 
a big enough part of kids' lives to be able to do studies. And, and universally, it seems to me, the, the, the answers that are coming back from these studies are that these things are having tremendous negative effects on kids. The, the study Jesse and I talked about, the article was called Have Smartphones Ruined a Generation? It was in The Atlantic. And I would urge, again, I think I've urged this before, but anyone that has kids of social media age to read that article and make their kids read it because it just demonstrates the the, the power that these programs have um, and the, the 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 negative influences that they have on kids and it's uh, it's a, it's a terrible thing to read actually and and uh, you know I've I've seen as my own life has been kind of more and more consumed by interactions with social media I'm you know I'm not on Facebook or Instagram but certainly. Twitter for me uh, and my old MySpace account. And no one seems to answer any um, messages to MySpace, which is a bit of a shame, but I'll, I'll wait and I'm sure at some point they will. Um, but anyway, we, let's move on to our next guest. And, and joining us now is, um, is Peter Atwater. Uh, Peter writes a financial research product called Financial Insights. That's Insights with a Y. And his work has become incredibly important to me because uh, as I followed Peter's writing on social mood and confidence to try and help identify turning points in markets. Everything you see happening around us in the world, both both in the world of politics and the world of investment at the moment, is the coalescence of a bunch of things that Peter's been talking about for quite some time. So I'm delighted to have Peter back on Adventures in Finance again. Thanks very much, Grant. Now, um, I, I've, I've bored a lot of people to death talking about the work you do around mood and confidence because I think it's just so important um, and everything you've been talking about for the last year it seems to me to have been leading up to, to right where we are now and uh, with Facebook being the focal point of what is clearly a mood shift I'd love first of all if you could just give people a sense of the kind of way you look at um, markets and then we can dig into the specifics of Facebook so I'd like to set the stage for people if we can. So I'd like to look at markets in terms of the behaviors that are often happening outside of the market. And so how are people, in the case of a company, using the product, um, believing in the product? What's the, what's the positioning of a particular company relative to its competitors? Because there are things that happen as confidence peaks that are important indicators, particularly around a company like Facebook. So let me let me drill down a little bit. Um, Facebook, to me, it, by analogy, is the beginning of the prime crisis in technology. And I say that because going back a couple of years, you had the subprime of tech begin to hit. And my my favorite example of that is Theranos, but there are many others that fit that same subprime mode when they only exist when confidence is euphoric. But as we saw in the housing market, the worst go first. And so the fact that we've seen Theranos, Lending Club, there are a number of these these subprime entities that have struggled and and collapsed. And the same was true with uh, what we saw in, in mortgages before the prime crisis began. But Facebook and the fangs, to me, are the beginning of the prime crisis in tech. The big generals are now being taken to the woodshed. Confidence is then is collapsing. And this has much bigger implications, not just to Silicon Valley, but to the markets overall. Yeah, Peter, I mean, that, that's, that's fascinating you say that because it's clear that Facebook is at the cutting edge of, of this particular change in circumstances. And I, I have to say, even I've been caught by surprise at just how fast and how vicious this turn has been. You know, when you, and you read through the press now, um, the Daily Telegraph in the UK, for example, as of three days ago, now has a, sudden, a, a, a whole new technology intelligence section in the newspaper, which deals primarily with Facebook at the moment, but they obviously feel like this is a, the sense of something that's going to only get bigger as time goes by. Has, has the extent to which this backlash seems to have gathered momentum surprised you, or is this playing out pretty much as you, as you suspected it might? No, I think that this has been, the seeds for this have been sowed for quite some time, and it's not surprising, again, when, when the, the generals start to be taken to the woodshed, everything seems to collapse at once. But the, the seeds for being too powerful, being um, not transparent enough, not being responsive enough, um, 
those have been those breadcrumbs have all been lining up for some time. So, so, so taking this kind of up a few tens of thousands of feet, just explain a little bit as to why why this dynamic exists. Why, for example, um, you know, I was looking at uh, a, a thing that a transcript that came out in 2010, which is an old thing that Zuckerberg had written in his dorm room on the on the internal Harvard messaging system. Um, you know, and and he had. He said to someone, if you need any information about guys at Harvard, let me know. And the guy said, well, what do you mean? He said, I've got thousands of email addresses and personal details. And his friend said to him, well, how did you get that? And Zuckerberg said, I just asked them, and they trusted me. And then he called them dumb expletives. And, you know, back in 2010, when that came to light, a lot of people listening to this won't even remember it because it was kind of a blip on the radar. Now, in the context of what's going on here and these issues around trust, when you read that again... It's infinitely more damning. So, so talk a little bit, if you can, about about how mood affects the quantum of change uh, when the tide turns. So, on the way up, we are happy to release our information because of the benefits to being part of a network. We we believe that there is value, there is um, benefit to accessibility to any number of features of being part of that online community and part of any community when confidence is rising. Once confidence peaks though, and the the network has become sufficiently large in size, then the downside of being part of a network starts to become more transparent. So again, as confidence rises, We ignore the downside risks, believing them to be either non-existent or more than offset by the benefits. Once confidence turns, though, and scrutiny begins to develop, our view of the downside risks go up. And so we're suddenly now worried that we gave them too much information. There were people on the network who shouldn't have been, who've now um, deceived me. And the, the danger in this and, and why I think this is going to be so damning to Facebook and, and social media in general is that the environment of scrutiny less participation has gone on for years. So there is no question that the system has been infiltrated with, with very bad players who have gained information that we are now going to be terrified that they understand about us. So, so what do you see as the, as the immediate path here for Facebook? What happens? Obviously, we've got government inquiries in the UK. We've got the FTC now uh, probing them. What do you think that the immediate future holds for Facebook? And, and as a supplementary question, what did you make of uh, Zuckerberg's, fi- uh, when he finally came out of, I won't call it hiding, that's a bit pejorative, but when he finally reappeared yesterday with his 900-word statement on Facebook? So for Facebook, it's going to be a crisis in parallel. Everything that can go wrong will go wrong. And I, and I say that not to pick on them, but periods, prolonged periods of overconfidence lead to chaos. And I, you can go back and look at Uber. You can go back and look at Theranos. You can go back and look at any situation where you've had prolonged overconfidence. It's going to be legal issues. It's going to be regulatory, political, social. The abandonment rates are going to become stratospheric. Uh, and that's, that's not to be unexpected. Again, too much overconfidence, the hits, the body blows just seem endless. Um, and this is where Zuckerberg and crew are woefully ill-equipped. And, and I think their first step demonstrates that because in an environment of falling confidence, communication has four factors. It needs to be authentic. It needs to be immediate. It needs to be transparent and it needs to be complete. And Mr. Zuckerberg failed on all fronts. And that failure now becomes a further reason to be suspicious of management. What are they withholding? What are they hiding? What do they know? And so the level of scrutiny that that's now going to elicit is only going to manifest in either more things that trouble people. 
Yeah, you know, I've I've been fascinated to watch this because obviously you know we we founded Real Vision um, <clears throat> four years ago now, and as as we've grown and the company's grown, there have been periods of time through that process where we felt woefully ill-equipped to deal with the expansion, and you, you're kind of learning these things as you go along. And Facebook's rise has been so fast and and so um, broad. That I, you know, I, I, through my own experience uh, and and that of my fellow co-founders at Real Vision, it doesn't surprise me that it, it seems to have reached a point where you kind of think, well, you're not equipped to deal with this. I mean, I I, I know for a fact that had Real Vision grown at Facebook's page, although it would have been amazing, um, there's no way the, the the guys who came in at the beginning would have been equipped to handle it. And so it feels to me as though you're going to start to see perhaps pressure on Zuckerberg to step down, perhaps to bring people in who are you know, professional CEOs rather than you know, college kids with a great idea. Um, what do you think all this pressure, when we wrap it up together, what does it mean for the stock and what does that, that path for Facebook stock mean for the broader market? Because obviously it has been a leader. So I, I think you raise a really important point about the speed of scaling. And and if you go back, there was a term used in Silicon Valley called blitz scaling. And it was a term that caught my attention because it spoke to the fact that the impatience that investors had and the perception of opportunity that was out there, that you know, being an American company alone was not enough. You had to become global immediately. And anybody who's grown a longstanding business knows that that is in just logistically impossible. You can't be globally dominant in, in one fell swoop. It's it's very fragile, and so that fragility that comes along with blitz scaling, I think, is makes these companies particularly vulnerable. And and you know, Facebook is only one of hundreds that have have achieve that kind of dominance. So they are they are too big for their own management bandwidth. They're too big for their own operational bandwidth. And all of these shortcomings are going to be exposed. So in the case of of, of Facebook, they're they're vulnerable because not only do you have um, somebody with the youthfulness of Mark Zuckerberg, but you also have somebody who is um, extraordinarily overconfident in Sheryl Sandberg, and and I say that because as you as you know, I I detest CEO books, um, and and you know she she has two under her belt that um, both of which just ooze hubris. So she is she who was brought in to be this operational. Um, wizard, I think, is equally vulnerable, and and as a tag team, I think that they're they're really way over their skis at this point. So 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 let's talk about the implications for um, the stock and and what that might mean for the broader market. Because obviously, since beginning of February, we've for the first time in in a, in a number of years now, we've seen some some weakness and some vulnerability in in the market structure. It feels like it's deteriorating underneath. Do you think this is the point where the market leaders, the FANG stocks, actually go, valuations start to matter? Because it seems to me this this could be the kind of tipping point that a lot of people have been sitting there waiting for. So the thing that I'm watching for Grant are the words corruption and fraud. Because to the extent that they are associated with Facebook – then you have an Enron-like potential outcome. And you know, we, we think of Enron and other WorldCom and these other dot-com bubble companies as being accounting-related, about you know, deceitful behavior on the part of management. But at the end of the day, it was the perception of corruption and the perception of fraud that brought them down. So I'm paying really, really close attention to, to semantics here. And for Facebook particularly, I think that they're, 
you know, putting up their hands saying it's not us defense is not going to be sufficient to preclude linking them directly into perceptions of corruption and fraud. That sense they should have known better, they should have acted more deliberately. Um, you know, when we when we go to blame people when confidence falls, um, we are quick to to make people complicit. And here's where I think Facebook is is especially vulnerable. You know, what did they know, and was their failure to act in essence associating them with corruption and fraud? Yeah, fascinating. I, when I read when I read both um, Mark Zuckerberg's and Sheryl Sandberg's statement yesterday, um, the word I saw that leapt out at me was trust. You know, they, they both talked about repairing trust, and it just feels as though trust was such a central component to Facebook's success, uh, and it was given so blindly to the company. It's the sort of trust that you really don't get back once you've lost it. Um, you know, what do you think about that aspect of this whole? Jigsaw. I, I think that's the cornerstone. You know, a social network only exists to the extent that there is trust in that community. And now that that has been violated, it, you know, I don't think investors particularly are going to give them the time that they need to rebuild that trust. And I think that the 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 collapse of trust, the vacuum that's now going to develop leaves them vulnerable. We, we trusted them too much. And as a result, we will now trust them too little. Yeah, that, that, that seems that seems to me to be the way this will play out. Um, now, Peter, I know you, you were teaching this morning. Um, and I'm curious as to, I don't know if you, 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 if you spoke about Facebook, I'd be amazed if you didn't, given what's going on. But if you spoke to, to your students about Facebook, because I'm, I'm very interested in what that age group make of all this. I asked the question in class, when did you trust Facebook the most? Because to me, that is the the ultimate question of, is it now? Is it past us? And what was so remarkable to me, this question asked to a group of college freshmen, is that their moment of greatest trust was 2012. Wow. That they associate their peak use focus of Facebook as, as middle school, seventh and eighth grade. And that to me, as given that they are, you know, the target audience, speaks to how far ahead the market got from how the users perceived the group. Today, the comments were around annoying, that, you know, changes that that things are annoying, that, that they're no longer amused by people's boastfulness online, that, that they're sick of this pretend environment where everybody's happier on Facebook. They, you know, they wish people were more authentic. So, so they're you know, playing back to me reasons that they don't trust the network as much as they used to. And I think that what is likely to get exposed in this is if they have felt that way and their real behavior was manifesting in time on site that was lower and other other actions, how come that hasn't been transparent in the financial metrics and disclosure of Facebook? So I think that there are going to be an increasing number of questions that says, if, if the crowd trusted this most years ago, how come we haven't seen that in the data? Yeah, you know, as, as I've watched this, and there, there was a fantastic Pew research study done about use of social media, and it was clear that you know, Facebook had become uh, a vehicle which was most popular with the older generation. You know, kids move on, they've moved from Facebook to Instagram and Snapchat, which I guess explains all the reasons why Facebook bought uh, some of these other platforms. But you know that that uh, if if you end up with a platform as it seems to me Facebook has, where the sort of over thirty fives are your major uh, users, then you do have a problem with this trust issue because I think people the over thirty fives understand more keenly the importance of of not perhaps giving access to your data to to bad actors, and so. Um, 
if you look at the Pew Research report, there were I think it was 66% of over 50s said they would find it very easy to give up social media. Um, and so when something like this happens, it seems to me to strike at the very heart of the biggest demographic that currently use Facebook, which seems to be another big, big headwind for the company. Well, and remember, for a social network to be valuable, everyone has to participate. So there, there's a binary quality here that's important. You know, the moment people perceive that others aren't using it, the need to use it drops dramatically. So, you know, you, you saw MySpace evaporate. Yes. And, and so the, there's, there's a lot of evaporation risk. You know, if, if others are exiting, then that is likely to foster my exit as well. Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's the more you talk about this, the more you re- realize just how precarious the position is. But you know, I, Peter, I could literally talk to you about this all day long, but unfortunately, we've run out of time. So, look, before we go, I know there's going to be people listening to this that would love to find out more about your thinking on this and and just your work around mood and confidence, which again, uh, I've been banging the table on this for a while. is is so important and so instructional and educational for me in find, terms of finding turning points. So, so please let people know where they can where they can find you and follow you and stuff. So they can follow me on Twitter. I'm Peter underscore Atwater on Twitter. Uh, they can go to my website, which is financial-insights, uh, insights, I-N-S-Y-G-H-T-S. Uh, and, you know, if they want research from me, info at financialinsights.com, and I'll be happy to get them set up. Fantastic. Ironically, no mention of a Facebook page there. I've never been a Facebook user. <laughs> well, there we go. Peter, look, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a great pleasure, and uh, we look forward to the next time you grace the airwaves of Adventures in Finance. Thanks very much, Grant. So, Grant, do you think this Cambridge Analytica Facebook news is kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, potentially, when it comes to maybe not just Facebook, but social media in general? You know, to, look, it, it's funny. Everything at the time seems like it might be a turning point, and we've and we've seen things come and go um, multiple times over the over the last sort of decade. But this is why I think Peter's work is so important because different things have a different context given the prevailing social mood, and that mood seems to be darkening. It seems to be darkening. Um, around some of the programs the Trump administration is bringing in. It seems to be darkening around Brexit. It seems to be darkening around social media. And with the simple path to tie both Brexit and Trump to social media, um, I get the sense that, that there is a backlash against uh, social media, particularly its beginning. Facebook is the focal point of it. But I, uh, you know, I agree with Peter. I think this spreads very, very quickly to, to Google and, and it centers around data, um, and as you know, data, Raoul calls data the new oil, and I think he's absolutely right. And we are undoubtedly heading into a period of regulation, um, of much uh, sharper focus on, on tech companies and data companies, and that just spells trouble for them, particularly with the massive valuations they've been given by the markets. Yeah, I, I think the key question is whether, because humans are always going to communicate, obviously. So the key question is, is this just another way that we communicate? Is this... You know, first we spoke to each other, then occasionally we wrote to each other, and then we maybe called each other on the phone. Is this just part of that, and and it's it's just a simpler, easier, more fun way to communicate, or or is it is it a short term thing? Is is it more of a trend? Is it something different from regular human communication? I, I think that that if you're well, trying well, to decide whether these will go away, that's the question you have to answer. No, I, I think you're right, but again. I think of everything in terms of pendulums, and and, and the pendulum of human interaction has swung so far in the direction of no direct human interaction whatsoever that, it, to me, it inevitably has to swing back. You know, I, I think we've all found this place in our lives where every communication we have is either through social media or through text. I mean, people, I'm always amazed when my phone rings um, and, I, and I don't just get a text from someone. Um, you know, people don't just call you to talk about stuff anymore. They send you a text. And so... You know, to me, I think that pendulum swings back the other way and, and people do start to, to communicate directly once again as opposed to uh, through text. And if, and if all the stuff about data and records being permanent, um, 
again, I think that's going to encourage people to actually want to talk more rather than leave written conversations up there which are searchable forever. So uh, to me, it really does feel like this could be a turning point. But, you know, I've, I've learned enough over the last 10 years to know that these things have, and I won't say do, but certainly have had a habit of disappearing. But I just get a sense that maybe this one's not going away so quickly. We'll see. Yeah, I'd be inclined to agree with you. I'd be really surprised if the pendulum didn't didn't swing back. And, and you know, face-to-face and voice-to-voice conversations are certainly my favorite way of communicating. And I, I think a lot of people will find that there's there's more value in them than they, they might acknowledge. Well, as always, time is going to tell. But talking of time, we're out of it. Um, and so we will have to wrap up. And to do so, obviously... Uh, everybody at home get out your cheat sheets for the legal disclaimer and join in with me here we go anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice these are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors so do your fundamental research chart your technicals place your stops and always trade responsibly Uh, we'll be back next week but in the meantime, if you've got an interesting question about this week's show, then we'd certainly love to hear from you. So send us an email or leave us a voice note at podcast at realvision.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes and even leave a review. Yes, leave a review. I like reading those reviews. Yes, you do. To keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and of course, podcast episodes, then do follow us on Twitter at Real Vision. Uh, we're also hanging around on Facebook and LinkedIn. Just search for Real Vision. Who knows how much longer we'll be doing that, Alex. You can follow me on Twitter at TTMYGH. You can follow me at Aces Rose, or you can just friend request me on Facebook. I, I love that. Uh, you can just find me at uh, AIF James on Twitter. That's it from us, folks. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you all next week. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips and ads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com